Hey, good morning, everyone. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark, and uh, Easter, two weeks from today. So um, make sure you're aware that we have different service times in this venue, okay, at Sprecher. So we have 8.30, 9.45, and 11. So our long services, 8.30, 9.45, and 11. Saturday night service till two services on Good Friday, a fun family event. Just encourage you to invite three people. Um, just be looking for people God placed across your path and just take a ticket or just invite them and encourage you to serve at one of the events. We've got lots going on. We're going to be welcoming lots of visitors and your help in that would be greatly, greatly appreciated. So good to have you all here this morning. I know it's like the beginning of spring. It doesn't feel like it, but this kind of warm weather that we're not having today, but we've had recently reminds me of what it was like as a kid to kind of reconnect with the outdoors, the backyard, the neighborhood gang, and just having a great time. In fact, you know, I was the kind of kid growing up that if it wasn't mealtime, I was always outside playing. And so here is the deal. I would play until I heard the family whistle. If you heard the family whistle, wherever you were, you stopped and you connected with one of your parents, whoever was whistling. That's just how we were raised. You had the My Fair whistle, and that meant at the end of an afternoon of playing, it's time for dinner. The expectation was clear. You go to the restroom on your way in the back door. It was right off to the side, that guest restroom, and you would wash your hands. And on your way to the table, mom would always ask, did you wash your hands? And I always gave the same answer, whether I did or not. Yeah, 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 I washed my hands, right? And then she'd say, well, let me see, right? Because my mother was Swiss, and details and cleanliness it was really important for her. And sometimes I passed the inspection, and sometimes I didn't. Washing my hands was not really important to me. And man, I wish I had known it wasn't important to Jesus because I could have started using scripture to tell my mom, Jesus didn't wash his hands either. What is the big deal here? So you don't believe me. Well, get your Bibles open. We're going to go there. Luke chapter 11, 37, Jesus is invited over to dinner and he doesn't wash his hands and he intensely doesn't wash his hand to get into this very important subject of hypocrisy and the danger of playing that deadly game of appearing to be someone that you're not as you tend to the external things of your life and neglect the internal things. So here's what we're going to learn today is who we are on the inside is just as important as who we are on the outside to God. It actually has everything to do with where we'll spend eternity and it'll position us either to bless someone's life or really to damn their life. So this is a really big deal. So let's catch up with Jesus' dinner and uh, the invite from the religious leader, the Pharisee, to dinner. Verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him, so he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. I told you it's in the Bible. You didn't believe me. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not, one who, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. 
Woe to you Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. So Jesus is going to unpack hypocrisy for them, for us. He's going to give us two defining marks. He's going to give us some implications of that. He's going to sound the alarm on some warnings that we better pay attention to and then give us the antidote, the cure for hypocrisy. Now, if you think about it, hypocrisy is one of those wild things. We all have it. You can't see it under a microscope. Man, it is so easy to see in your life, so hard to see in my life. When we see it in others, we're just outraged. We, we just go, I cannot believe how hypocritical that is. When, when we're called out, we are so offended and we are so quick to justify, rationalize, and cover up any hint of it. But Jesus goes right after it. There's no mistake to what it, it's not like Jesus was really hungry that day and he forgot to wash his hands. No, he was going into dinner to have a conversation about the importance of having our inner life and our outer lives be congruent, be one. And so he gets into it and he gives us the first mark. And the first mark is there's a preoccupation with external rules, a preoccupation with the rules and a careless neglect, though, of character, of the inward life, of our heart. And so external things trump internal things. Perception of how people see me over reality and integrity. That's the first mark. So the host, the Pharisee, he's, he's focused on what Jesus did or, in this case, failed to do. He is all about the externals. That's how he's wired up. That's how you can spot the real deal. You know what they're doing. Jesus isn't doing what he's supposed to be doing. Any religious person knows that you need to wash yourselves. Not, it's not a matter of hygiene for these guys. It's not like my Swiss mother. This is about, it's about being holy. And this is what holiness looks like. You, you take care of things like your hands as as. As, as a reminder that, hey, our lives are set apart for God and we're supposed to be clean people and so we wash our hands to remind ourselves that. And he's not doing that. He supposedly is a religious man and this guy is all over that, calls it out. Jesus knows he's calling it out. So what does Jesus do? He says, no, wait a minute. He says, the God who made the outside is also the God who made the inside. It's really important to note what Jesus is not doing. He's not saying, hey, it doesn't matter what you do outwardly doesn't matter how you treat of course those things matter he's saying but equally so our inward life matters God made us as whole beings he's concerned not only about the outside of our life but the inside of our life and so he's where is he at he's at the table and so what does he do he just uses what's in front of him he goes to the cup to the dish and he says look it's it, it's just like this cup here he says you, you're taking care. Your life is like the cup. There's an outside of the cup. There's an inside of the cup. You guys are paying attention just to the outside, just the part that people see. Hey, but inside, man, it's nasty inside. It's like, remember when you went to the restaurant and the cup was turned upside down and the waitress asked you, would you like some coffee? You said, yeah. She grabs the cup. She's about to pour. She goes, uh-oh, because there's all this encrusted crud on the cup. And you're glad she said, uh-oh. And maybe you did it before. So, you know, I need a new cup. You, you went to the, to the cupboard. You pulled down the, the cup. You're about to pour the orange juice, the milk, the coffee, the tea. And you go, uh-oh, 
the dishwasher failed on this cup and there's all this junk in there and you're going, there is no way I'm using that cup. That is useless to me. He says, you guys are all about polishing the outside, making it look all good. But inside, you're full of crud. What you're full of, he said, is greed, which, which actually is so much stronger a word in the original. It speaks of a violent seizure of things that don't belong to you. It's not just, ooh, I really wish I had that. I don't care if I have it and they don't have it. It's just like, and I will violently take it if, I mean, I'll go to that extreme to get it to be mine. And you're full of all these evil purposes and desires. And so he says, look, what you say and who you are need to be one and the same. You're spending way too much attention on the outside. God wants the outside and the inside to both be clean, to be congruent, to be whole. You're, you're, you're setting up this veneer. And underneath, there's all this cardboard. It looks like it's solid wood on the outside. It looks like it's the real deal on the outside, but it's not. It's not. And he calls them out on that. And so there's this preoccupation with rules, a careless neglect of character. And that's because of the second mark. There's this preoccupation with self. We think image is everything is a very modern notion. Oh, man, it's as old as mankind. They're all into image. They're preoccupied with themselves. They're self-centered. They're selfish ambition. There's all these self-serving things that they're doing because the reason they're, they're attending to all these external rules is so that the people around them think that, whoa, that guy is serious about God. He is really a godly person. I mean, just look at all the things he's doing. And he says, not only are you preoccupied with yourself, you actually are neglecting, you're neglecting people that are in distress and in need. You're, you're so majoring on the minors that you're so concerned about these external rules. And he gives in verse, what is it, 42? He gives the example of you guys are so serious about the law that you're actually tithing on your herb garden. You're bringing in your mint and it'd be like, it'd be like walking in this morning and going, honey, did you just see that? What? The guy dropped a baggie in the box. I'm pretty sure there was parsley and, and there was cilantro in there. And what is, it's like, I, I want you to know, I am so serious about tithing that Lori and I bring produce from our garden and we stick it in the box just so you know. He goes, you guys are so careful about the minute details of these things. You're so majoring on the minors. You're not saying throw it out. But you should not have overlooked the former. And that is the weightier matters of the law, which are about justice, loving your neighbor, and about loving God. So he calls them out about their preoccupation with self. You guys are looking for the applause, living for the applause, seeking out those places of honor, seeking out the praise of people. You crave their applause more than you do God's well done. And you have lost the forest from the trees. The law has always been about a relationship. The law, Jesus says, has always been just consumed and, and absorbed into the greater commandments of loving God, right? With how much of our heart? All of it. All of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So you're giving the impression that you love God. You don't love God. You've neglected loving God. How have they neglected loving God? They're giving like their 10% of their herbs. Come on, that sounds pretty loving to God. That sounds pretty devoted. You can't love God if you're 
letting your neighbor who's in distress stay there, and you don't care about that. You care more about yourself. Those are the marks. Preoccupation with externals, with yourself, with your image, a neglect of your heart, of your character, of the internal dimension of our life, neglect over the people who are suffering injustice. And so he calls them unmarked graves. He says, you are, live, you are living your lives in such a way to give the appearance that you are spiritually alive and vital people, but actually you're a holder of dead things. You're an unmarked grave. And, and the significance of unmarked is people don't know that you're there as something that's actually a container of that which is death and deadly. They think you're full of vitality and life. You're an unmarked grave. They don't know that. And as such, an unmarked grave in their day would be a place that would make you unclean. So you're not recognized for who you really are because there's a charade going on. There's a charade going on. You're hiding behind your religious rituals and traditions and Jesus just goes after them. I love verse 45. So he's at dinner with the Pharisees, and there are obviously some religious leaders along in the dinner party. Some of them were experts in the law. You call them scribes. These are guys that knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. They play games and say, I'm putting the pit in here, and I can tell. Let's guess what word it is, what letter it is of the Hebrew alphabet. I mean, these guys knew the Bible backwards and forwards. And, and so the teacher of the law, this scribe says in verse, oh, you got to love this, teacher, rabbi, Jesus, when you say these things, you, uns- you insult us too. Jesus is going, yeah, duh. Good. I'm glad you're in class today. He's so offended. Hey, Jesus, you are offending us too. Because, you know, we're connected with the Pharisees. We're helping them as they set up all the fences around the fences that God has placed in the law so that people don't get anywhere near breaking that commandment. And we're helping them interpret the law so they can know what fences to build around the law to help everybody keep the law. We're part of the Pharisees. You're insulting us too. So Jesus goes on. He said, well, let's talk about that. Verse 46, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify, you approve of what your ancestors did. They kill the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who are entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. It's like, all right, so you, get, you got dirt on us, Jesus? We're going to get dirt on you. We're going to level this playing field. We don't like what's going on here. And so Jesus moves from the marks to the implications. And he basically says this. Look, the implications of hypocrisy is you play that game, it is a deadly game, and it is going to bring great hurt and harm to other people. You guys are all focused on the rules, you scribes and you Pharisees, and what you have done is put all these do's and don'ts on the people. 
And it's this burden on the people. And you guys are like referees going, whoop, foul, whoop, yeah, yeah, you cross the line, out of bounds here. No, that's, you know, that's charging. They, they got all the lingo down and all these people are going, oh my word, oh my word, I can't remember everything I'm supposed to do and not to do. And, and their whole life is all focused on the rules. It's a weight of guilt that they're living under imposed by these people who they don't know are living the double standard. It seems like they've got it all together. They're such religious people. Of course they're keeping all the law. My word, they're tithing on their herb garden. Are you kidding me? He says, you're putting a weight on them. You're killing your people. And so he calls them out and he says, you guys are just religious pretenders. You guys are just posers. In fact, that's, that's at the root of the word hypocrisy. It was actually used to describe someone who was an actor on the stage. You're just pretending. You're playing a part. We'll sometimes say, you're, you know, you got a mask on. That, that, that's what's going on here. He's calling them religious posers marked by their self-righteous pride, their big-headed, shriveled heart, religious Mr. Potato Heads. That's who they are. And he's calling them out. So the implication is, hey, this is a deadly game. Don't think, as long as nobody knows, it's not going to hurt anybody. No, it actually does. It actually does. And it's especially dangerous when this is mixed up with pursuit of God, following God. Very dangerous mix. Brings great harm to people. I think of um, my mom's family. So she grew up. There were nine kids. They grew up in a very strict little church that was marked by law and rules and legalism. And the leaders' lives weren't consistent with what they were saying and how they were living their life. And so just about all of my aunts and uncles just walked away from it. Because there's a point where there's a weight as you think your leaders are like doing it, and you're going, oh my gosh, this is so hard. And you're just trying, you're trying, you're trying. And then there's a point where like your eyes are open wide, and you go, oh my word, this is a complete charade. And when you find that out, it is real easy to walk away, and there's been a lot of people. You go, well, that kind of reminds me of how I grew up. There are a lot of people that have never been back to church because this is the church, this is the construct that they grew up in. It is a deadly game that hurts other people. But it hurts you too. It hurts the one who's playing the game. And it leaves us in the crosshairs of God's judgment. So Jesus says, look, you know, let me move from your rules to, to these monuments. We build monuments for people that we honor. So what are they doing? They're building monuments. They're building these tombs for the prophets that died. Who killed the prophets? Did, how did they die? Well, they were murdered, eyes wide open, by people who weren't pretending like, we, we want to hear what God says. No, they, they didn't want, they heard what God said through the prophet and they said, I reject what God is saying to me. I, I don't like what they're saying to me. God's calling them out for idolatry. He's calling them out for taking advantage of the vulnerable in their own midst. And they go, and God's saying, you got to turn back to me or I'm going to turn you over to a group of people who are going to drag you away to get your attention. And they go, we reject that. We reject that. They kill the prophets. Their ancestors, these guys Jesus is talking to, the religious leaders, are now building 
monuments to these people pretending like they're in solidarity with the Old Testament prophets. And Jesus says, no, you're not. And you're in a worse place. And here's why you're in a worse place. Because at least nobody was confused back in the day when they killed the prophets. They made it clear they weren't for God. You're, you're actually pretending like you're pro-prophets. You're pro-God's message. You're pro-God's messengers. You're not. Your heart's just as close to it. You're building a monument and a tomb for these guys that, that makes it appear like you're for that. No, you're not. You're not for that. And so yours is a worse sin. The blood of Abel and all the way to Zechariah, it's all on you. And Jesus knowing full well what's going to happen because he's turned to Jerusalem. We're at that point in the gospel. He's turned to Jerusalem. He knows he's going to die. He's already talking about it. And he knows it's these guys who are going to take him out. It's these guys who are going to turn him over to the Roman authorities. And he's going to be impaled on a Roman cross because of these guys. And so he calls them out. He says, their blood, you're guilty. Their blood is on your hands. And so he says, look, the last thing he says to these guys is, look, you're pretending that you've got the key of knowledge because you have all this knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. You're, you're, you're saying that we know the way in. He's saying, you're not in. You don't have the key. The key is not to keep the law. The whole purpose of the law we find out in the New Testament is to help us understand that we can't keep the law. And then our confidence of going forward in life with peace and forgiveness and a right relationship with God is not in my ability to keep all the law. You're obscuring the hope that God has always put in the heart of the law. And that is one who is keeping the law, the Messiah. And so you've obscured Christ. They can't see him from the pile of rules that you've stacked up. You're not in. You've thrown away the key. The key is not keeping the law. The key is trusting the one who would come to fulfill and keep the law. He calls them out. Huge implications. A deadly game for others, for ourselves. And so he gives the warnings. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, maybe that day, maybe later that afternoon, maybe another day, Luke is putting these things together because you can see they go one one with the other, so that they were trampling on one another, so big was the crowd, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples. So his conversation before was to the religious leaders. Now he's talking to the inner core, his disciples, right? Saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Be on your guard. So the first warning is, hey, this hypocrisy, man, it can spread. You take it in. And it's going to grow like yeast grows in a dough. Now, I, so I was going on yeast, and I don't know what happened to me. I don't always do this, but I thought, okay, let's turn the study into a little science lab. And so I was working at the kitchen table. No one was home. And I went to the counter, and I turned, I got these little jars, and I got the yeast from the fridge. I was feeling very scientific. And um, I put some, you know, I noticed that the yeast in the package has been in the cat package, you know, for a while. That stuff lasts for a long time, right? And nothing's changed. So I made that observation. Then I put some yeast in with water, and I knew the water's supposed to be warm, Right? That's what you do. And nothing was happening over time. And then I put the yeast in some warm water with some flour. Oh, something started to happen. I, I didn't know this, but do you realize in one little package of yeast, there's 140 billion cells? And those cells, when they're activated by the warm water, and, and they, have, they have something like flour and sugar and maybe eggs mixed in, man, that stuff just multiplies and multiplies and grows. He's saying, be careful. This is like yeast. 
You get a little of it in your system, in your heart, and it just takes over. It's crazy. It takes over. Don't let it get in your heart. Know that. This stuff's contagious. That's the first warning. The second warning in verses 2 through 5 is, hey, this stuff is deadly. The consequences are huge. So in verse 2, there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed. Speaking about inner life, outer life. There's nothing hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you've whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him, fear God, who after your body has been killed has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's a really loving thing for Jesus to say. And Jesus did say, God has the authority to throw people in hell. Maybe not your view. Maybe you don't like that view. Jesus says, one day, the charade ends. The curtain drops. The play's over. And we will stand, not before an audience that maybe have been applauding us all our lives, but before one, a holy God who knows the inner part of my life, are my motives, my attitudes, not just the outer part of my lives, my life, my words and my actions, and I will give an account. It's all gonna be televised. It's all gonna be broadcast. It's all gonna be in the light of day. That's a frightening thing because it's really easy to fool people here. It's really easy to live for the applause of the crowd. He says, don't do that. You live for God. You live for him. You fear him. Fearing him is is Old Testament language for trust God. Trust God. Yes, it includes this reverent awe of a holy God, but it also talks about a heart affection. It talks about a joy-filled trust, obedient faith in God. He said, fear him. And remember to fear him more than the crowd you're trying to please. So those are clear warnings. It's a deadly game that hurts. It's a deadly game that actually it's going to, It's going to determine my eternal destiny. I wonder if we actually believe that. Jesus lovingly lets us know that the inside of our lives, not just the outside, matters to God. And because of that, should matter to us. It's going to determine our destiny and it's going to determine our position to actually grace people's lives or to damn them. So Jesus comes to the cure. We've seen the marks. We've heard the warnings and the implications of those warnings, and now he comes to the cure. And it's simple, and it's profound. And it's it's a medicine that we need to hear and receive. We need to take it every day. So he says, so remember to trust God and know that he loves you unconditionally and will care for you. So look at verses 6 and 7. This is where he goes in the text right after the warnings. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? So do the math there. Those sparrows aren't very expensive, are they? Yet not one of them is forgotten by God. How many millions of sparrows? I mean, why is it every spring we don't say, hey, who saw the first sparrow? 
Why, don't we, why, why aren't we looking for sparrows? Because they're around all the time. There isn't a continent you can go to except probably the Arctic. And I probably got that wrong. My son will tell me, no, Dad, actually, there's sparrows. Anyways, <laughs> they're everywhere. There's like gazillions of sparrows, right? And, and, and what does he say? Not one of them is forgotten. Now, think about how many millions of sparrows there are in North America, in South America, in Africa, in Europe, in Australia, and how many are maybe flying in route somewhere. He knows every one of them. Not one of them is forgotten. Not one of them slips his radar. Indeed, verse 7, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Not only does he know where all the sparrows are, he knows who you are. He knows you so intimately. He can tell you how many hair follicles are actually sprouting on your head and how many have stopped. <laughs> he knows the very hairs of your head. All are numbered. Such intimate knowledge. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what others think. Don't be afraid of the things in your life that remind you of you don't have it all together. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows, than flocks of sparrows. This is the breakthrough. This is the breakthrough. Is trusting God. Trusting what God thinks about me, what God says about me. Not based on my performance for him, but based in my profound trust in the gift of his son. Trusting that, trusting that. When I was in junior high, that, that wasn't there. I, I, I loved Christ as a young boy, but I got to junior high. And knowing that God loved me, it actually, honestly, functionally, it wasn't enough for me. I, I, I had to get the applause of my classmates. And so I was the class clown and the goofball. And if my friends which really weren't my friends, but the people I wanted to have be my friends, if they were out shoplifting, well, then I figured I'm going to figure out how to do that. And I was going to do all the stuff to gain their applause because fundamentally I didn't believe that what God thought of me was enough, would win the day. I was afraid in, in, in the face of my peers that I wouldn't measure up and so I was chasing after it, and I grew a toggle switch so I could literally be one person at home, one person at church, another person at school, and there was all this dissonance because there wasn't unity in my life. There was war going on in my life, and I was miserable until I surrendered my life to Christ and said, God, help me. I want to live for you. I want to believe that you're enough as I'm trying so desperately to find my way. And I would so love to say, and isn't it great to have graduated middle school and all that stuff's behind us now? Oh man, that's the stuff of life. That's the stuff of my prayer for my five kids, my son-in-law. That we together would know who we are in Christ. That we would be strong in that. That we'd be filled with that. That we'd be complete that we would know that wholeness so that I wouldn't be tempted to live in this 
category of I'm something else on the inside than I am on the outside. That, that I wouldn't have to play the game. That I'd be freed from that. And so some of us, man, we're, we're, we're looking for that wholeness and fullness in someone else. We're, we're looking at, for, for it in a position. And as long as we're chasing that out with anything and anyone that is not Jesus, we're always going to end up at the same place. We're going to be restless. We're going to be restless. And he says, here's the cure. Remember that I love you because I made you. Remember that I love you unconditionally. I know the very numbers of the hairs on your head. I'm going to take care of you. Trust me that I'm enough. Trust me. So he goes and says, well, this is what it looks like if you're trusting me. Verse 8, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. If you trust God, you will acknowledge him publicly. Do people at school know that? Do people in your family know that? In your circle of friends know that? Do people at work? Do people on your floor at the dorm know that? People who trust God acknowledge Christ publicly, he says. Verse 9, but whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you're brought before synagogue rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Here's how I know if I'm trusting God. I publicly acknowledge Christ. I don't disown him, especially when the heat's on. And the context here is, yeah, you may be dragged in to people with power over you. And you may be in a position where you go, I think this is not going to be good for me that they know that I'm a Christ follower. So what are you going to do? You have a choice. You're going to trust God? Or are you going to just say, I, I, I don't, I never said that. I don't believe that. You know, someone who trusts God is receptive to the work of the Spirit. This is often referred to as the unforgivable, unpardonable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is that? Well, here, here's what it is. It's, it's rejecting the work of Christ's spirit that comes to us and says, hey, Mark, you, you have things that are despaired in your life. You need a savior. You are broken. You need forgiveness. And I say, no, I don't. No, I don't. I'm just fine. I don't need a savior. I can be my own savior. The spirit who comes to say, hey, I, I want you to experience a relationship with God by grace through faith in Christ. You go, I, don't, I, don't, I don't need that. I don't want that. I, the Spirit who comes to guide us into truth and to give us wisdom and power to live that way. I, I don't want that. I don't need that. You cut yourself off from the Spirit. You reject the Spirit. You're no longer soft to God's work through the Spirit. You cut yourself off from the work of the Spirit. You make that decision. People go, I, I, I'm wondering if, I, if I've done that. I think maybe I've committed the unforgivable sin. I guarantee you. If you come to me or any pastor with that question, a godly friend with that question, they will tell you the same thing. The fact that you're concerned that you may have done this tells me you have not done that. Because the person who is in that position is so stone hard, they don't give a rip. They don't give a rip. You trust God, you acknowledge him publicly. You trust God, you are receptive. Your heart is soft to the work of the Spirit. So let's bring it home. The first thing is, Let's not make the same mistake they made. The reason Jesus passed by the pitcher and the bowl and didn't wash his hands is because they didn't know who they were. They'd lost sight of the inside 
dimension of their life. They didn't see themselves as he saw them. They confused religious habits for holiness. So let's just all say it out loud. I'm a hypocrite. I, I, I love when people say, you know, my problem with the church is it's full of hypocrites. And my first response is, I know. And like, I'm at the head of the line. We just need to own it. That there are things on the inside of our life that are not congruent with the life of faith. There are things on the inside of my life that's not congruent with what I'm, I'm wanting you to believe about my life. We acknowledge that. We come clean with that. And we come clean with the destructiveness of it. I mean, you've been there. You've got a friend. They were so nice to you. And then you heard, like, there's a whole other conversation going on about you with your friends that isn't nice. And you're going, what is going on here? It is so destructive to a friendship. It is so destructive in a family. When parents would have the audacity to say, and I'm nervous of this, just do as I say, not as I do. Hello? And so there's this double standard. Man, it is so hard for kids. And parents, this is like, this is like a, a huge learning curve on what are we to pay attention to? Not just the outside of the dish. Not just the outside of our kids' life, their cup. Manners, yes, it's important. Etiquette, yes, it's important. Behavior, performance, conduct, all those things are important, but not half as important as their heart. And so what happens is we're raising up our kids, we're turning them into functioning hypocrites because we keep trying to manage their behavior and we're trying to reorientate their behavior to be better behavior. And what they need is not better behavior, they need a new heart. We need to connect their behavior to their heart and their heart to Christ. And that's like liberating. It's for our kids to go, oh, that's why I can't do this. Because my heart's messed up. I don't even want to do it. And that's what Jesus gives us, a new heart with a new capacity. I actually want to do that. And the new power of his spirit to help us do that. We, we shepherd our child's heart, not just their, their, their behavior, not just the externals. So I wonder what kind of leadership you're around. There's all kinds of leadership that, that is marked with this epitaph, unmarked grave. How do you know you're following an unmarked grave? Well, they use the Bible. They got a lot of Bible verses. They're all about rules. They're really focused on the external dimensions. They're definitely into Jesus, but Jesus isn't enough. It's definitely a concert. It says Jesus plus. Jesus is great, but man, you got to do this too. And you got to do this too. And you got to do this too. You know you're following an unmarked grave when there's this growing sense of, I'm always feeling hopelessly guilty before God. That's not what grace does. Grace takes us into this place of freedom, of hope, of peace, of marveling at, are you kidding me? What kind of leadership are we following? What kind of leadership are we bringing to the table? So let's own it. Let's not lose our way in thinking religious habits make for holiness. A second thing I'd say is, then if we're at that place where we should all be, 
that's me, then let that reality drive us to Christ. Maybe for the first time. And you go, yeah, I have been miserable. I have been miserable living this double standard, this double life. It wears you out. And just say, you know what? Time out, end game. I, I, I want to get this stuff right. God, help me out. For those of us, well, well we did that a long time. We, we surrendered our lives to Christ and we're going, oh, but man, man I, I have so, I have moved so far on from that and I'm playing this game. And I'm trying to really work hard that other people around me really come to the conclusion, I have got it all together. Let it drive you to Christ. The one who died condemned, actually, if you think about it, as a hypocrite. What was the charge they brought against him? Blasphemy. What is blasphemy? It's claiming to be God. And they said, this is the ultimate hypocrisy that condemns you to death. So serious. He died condemned as the ultimate hypocrite. The one who Peter said, he knew no sin, nor was there any deceit. There's no duplicity in his mouth. The one who the Father from the heavens said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The one who had complete integrity. The one who actually kept the whole law. The one whose motives and attitudes and words and actions were all congruent. That he died convicted as a hypocrite. The only one who's ever been pure and wholehearted for people like me. And people like you, let it drive you to Christ. Call on him to forgive you, to give you a new heart. And then the third thing is take in the word. Take in the word. Take in God's word and take, God's by, take God by his word. It's a really interesting thing. So this whole thing of cure brought me to 1 Peter 2.1 in the study this week. Here's how Peter talks about getting rid of hypocrisy. Therefore... Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. So what is this metaphor of the pure spiritual milk? Go back to chapter 1, verse 23. You find out he's talking about the word of God. He's saying, you want to get rid of these things that are all about your self-centered living? He said, the way to do it, the way to get rid of your duplicity, your hypocrisy, is to take in God's word. Because when you take in truth, and you allow that truth to sanctify you, to set you apart, to actually position you to live truth, then there is no room for hypocrisy to grow and multiply, even to exist in your life. Take in the word of God. Hebrews says it's a living word. It's like yeast. It's a living word. It gets into my heart. It does something. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, right? Um, 2 um, Timothy 3, 16, he says, this word is useful for teaching. It teaches me. It it reproves me. It says, Mark, what are you doing, man? That is not congruent. That is not of God. And it corrects me. It gives me back on the path of living. It trains me to live rightly before God and others. I, get, I take in the word of God. I take in the word of God so that I would not just hear the word of God, that I'd live the word of God. That's the remedy. And when, when you look at this context, then it takes us back to this surprising verse. We're always looking for surprises. So were you surprised? Or were you just glad I skipped over it and didn't say anything? Go back to verse 41 of chapter 11. 
So what's he talking about? Cleaning the outside of the cup, that's what they were into, neglecting the inside, all about show, all about image, all about the glitz and glamour of their supposed pious religious life, but they're full of greed and wicked purposes and evil. He says, verse 41, but now, as for what is inside you, you want to take care of your heart? Be generous to the poor and everything will be clean for you. Well, I was like, I wasn't expecting that. I, th- I thought he was going to say something like, hey, you, you better confess this stuff. You better fast. You better pray. You better make it right with it. This is real. He says, hey, you, you need to give generously to the poor, the people in need. And, and that won't just clean up the greedy part of your life. That'll clean up all of it. Like, really? I mean, that would never have been my application to us this morning if it wasn't in God's word. I would never have said. So you want to you ferret out? You want to clean out your inner house? You want to get it congruent? Then let's talk about your money. You'd have gone, there you go again. Are you kidding me? How did you get to money? Jesus gets to money. And notice that he didn't say, just give generously. He says, give generously to the poor. And as you do, it'll make your whole inner heart clean, set apart, useful for God. So think about it. You give to the poor generously. You're giving to someone who can't say, hey, you know what? I'll give you 10% on this loan. And and you're going, yeah, well, that makes sense. I'm going to get 10% more than I'm loaning him next month. They can't give back to you. And and we can't go, well, the nice thing about this poor person is they're going to put a good word for me and help me get up on that pedestal. People don't even know they exist. People don't listen to their voice. They don't have a voice in society. He said, you give to those people who can't give anything back to you in return. And when you're giving like that, that's going to clean you up from the inside out. (laughs) So that's what we're on about as a church to give generously to people in distress. But that's what we need to be about. What does that look like for you? What does that look like for us in this church? Give generously to the poor. Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They're the ones who will see God. Let's pray. Father God, we all agree that there's a lack of conformity between our hearts and our lives. What we know is ugly and divisive and hurtful is uh, just part of the fabric of our, our lives. And so forgive us for not seeing it in our lives and for being really good about finding the specks of it in others. And so, Lord, show us. Show us these, these beams, these telephone poles, these shortcomings. Show it to us, and Jesus, forgive us. Take them away. Fill us with your truth. And may the truth of your unconditional love for us and your grace to us make us whole. Free us from living for the applause of others. Free us from the charade. Free us from the dissonance, from the things that are wrecking us. May we live for you with wholehearted lives and devotion. May this place, by your grace, 
point people to your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen.